In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There is, hanging in the National Gallery of London, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci that he did uh, towards the end of the 15th century. There's another version of it in the Louvre in France. But this painting is entitled The Virgin of the Rocks, and it's a picture that looks like that, because that's what it is. It's a picture of the Virgin Mary with Jesus and two little cherubic angels that are attending to them. And it has great power and potency, and if you stare at it long enough, you are moved by what you find there. But someone noticed on the version that hangs in the National Gallery, they, they noticed a, something faint that they couldn't quite put their finger on, but they wondered if maybe there was something that da Vinci had done before he went to his final copy or his final version of this painting. And they actually did a spectral scan of the painting because they obviously didn't have anything else to do. And they discovered that there was something beneath the final paint. That if you strip away all that was there, there was actually a whole different rendering of where Mary would be and where the baby Jesus would be and where the angels would be. And there in the vellum, you could see the the faint outlines, the faint tracings of where da Vinci started his idea, conceptualizing the painting, which was then only changed later by what you have as the finished copy. And so once they were done with that analysis and they could see what was behind it, they helped us all to see by superimposing on the finished product what was there underneath. And that's what it would have looked like. So there's the faint tracings of the painting before he finished the painting, capital P. And so you think about that, and I have for the last month since I heard about this story, that that painting has actually a painting beneath it. That there is a painting beneath the painting. And I don't think it's a stretch to say every painting in some way tells a story. And so in this light, With those faint tracings, now seen superimposed against the final product, what you have here in full view is the story beneath the story. That, I think, is a wonderful picture, haha, of where we're going in the next several months in a series together. Because we're going to listen to a very different voice. For the last nine months, we've been listening explicitly to the voice of Jesus, both in his Sermon on the Mount and in the stories that he liked to tell through what he called parables. Today, we're going to start a several-week series by listening to the prophet Isaiah. And that story, as you will come to soon see, is a very different setting, a very different voice, and a very different storyline. And yet, I would like to argue to you here on the front end that the story that Isaiah tells is sort of like the faint tracings that you see here in da Vinci's painting. It is the story beneath the story. That is how they're related. So it is our job, if you're ever going to study any of the book of the Bible, that you have to take that book on its own terms. We're going to have to listen to Isaiah's voice. We're going to have to consider Isaiah's context. We're going to have to understand Isaiah's audience. But then we're going to try to draw a line from there to what Jesus has to say and what Jesus has to say to us. That's acting responsibly both to what Isaiah has to say and how Isaiah fits into the whole storyline of the Bible. Isaiah is a very ancient work. It comes from around the 8th century, we're told, prior to Jesus' arrival on earth in human form. Eight centuries. Very old. And yet, I would like to suggest to you here on the front end, to orient you, there is something timeless about what he's going to have to say to Israel. There are resonances with 
his day and our day that I think will make this series rather compelling. On one count, Isaiah is speaking into a very polarized moment. The nation of Israel, which was formed over centuries, has now been divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And there is no love lost between them. And what is between northern and southern kingdoms is nothing short of suspicion, if not an adversarial posture. They don't like each other. And that's in the same country. Sound familiar? What also resonates with our day is in Isaiah's day, both northern and southern kingdoms were tempted with something. Tempted to align themselves with power rather than faith in who God was to them. There are raging imperialistic nations like Assyria, like Egypt, and all of them are vying for alignment with Israel, whether it's the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. And Isaiah comes into that moment moment and says, don't listen to them. Don't align yourself with power. It will be your downfall. And sure enough, it was. Sound familiar? But on one other count, this work connects with us. That is a day into which Isaiah speaks that is full of social and spiritual decay. I'm reading very early this morning about a recent report that comes out of the Senate that says between 2000 and 2017, the number of people reporting loneliness and the depths of despair has risen by a 100%. The fact that you and I are so accustomed to hearing stories about mass shootings and it no longer really registers to us unless it happens right in our backyard is just one picture, one piece of how what we might say something's not working. And there is a similar set of circumstances that will give Isaiah the reason to say that too. I want to orient you in that way. I want to orient you in one other way. I want to orient you to Isaiah's words by letting you listen to a very modern voice that one of you sent to me recently. It's a clip. It's by a guy named John Green. He's got a brother named Hank. They do these video blogs every week. John's the one that wrote The Fault in Our Stars. It became a movie. His parents live around here. Some of you know his parents. John Green is about to, I'm going to show you this clip from John Green from a couple weeks ago, in which he's going to refer to a poem that W.H. Auden wrote on the eve of World War II. And what you're going to hear John Green say and speak, I think, captures what it means to have a prophetic voice. But before I explain to you what I mean by that, I just want you to listen to what he has to say in his own analysis of our day through the lens of a very old poem. Listen. Good morning, Hank. It's Tuesday. There's this W.H. Auden poem called September 1st, 1939 that begins, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. I've always read that poem as a kind of relic, like a fragment of what life felt like in 1939 as the war in Europe began. In a different poem written around the same time, Auden writes about all the dogs of Europe barking and each nation being sequestered in its hate. And those sentiments always felt distant to me, even historical. But as we approach September 1st, 2019, 80 years since that poem was set, I confess to feeling uncertain and afraid, and like the clever hopes are expiring of 
of a low, dishonest decade. I certainly don't think we're at imminent risk of the kind of global war that Auden lived through, but in the 41 years I've been around, I've never experienced a now that felt so precarious and fraught and weird. Hatred, which has always coursed through the human story, does feel ascendant at the moment, and polarization is worsening, and with it the dangerous dehumanization of others. When we call people trash or vermin or monsters, we edge toward the great abyss, the abyss where we treat people as trash or vermin or monsters. And I guess I should stop here and acknowledge that I am hopeful, and I think the data supports my hope. Like, homicides and violent crime in general declined in the U.S. in 2018, and in fact are both lower than they have been in 42 of the last 45 years. Even after adjusting for inflation, average household income has risen consistently over the last decade in the U.S., while unemployment has consistently declined. But I don't think any of that invalidates the contemporary horrors. I mean, for one thing, in the U.S., both violent crime and unemployment were also falling during the late 1930s. But also, like, something is wrong. Even as humans are living healthier lives and have better technologies to connect us, we report on average feeling lonely than we did 10 years ago, and also less happy. And life expectancy in the U.S. is going down for the first time in decades, primarily due to substance abuse disorders and mental health conditions. Something is clearly wrong, and maybe part of what makes me feel so uncertain and afraid is that I don't know quite what. That Auden poem goes on, waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. And I don't know if this is just me, but these days I do sometimes feel like the waves of anger and fear wash over me with such force that I am powerless before them and overwhelmed by them. Whether it's the death of a friend or climate change or mass murder, I sometimes feel like I'm an actor in a play I cannot rewrite lost in a haunted wood, as Auden put it. I don't want you to worry about me. I'm fine, I promise. I just don't know how we unwind from this. How do we get out of this strange labyrinth of terrors and outrages? I don't know, but I do believe we will. I believe that one day I will try to explain to my children why this moment felt so strange and scary, and to them it will feel like history. The most famous line in that poem is, we must love one another or die. And to me, that is gospel truth. We must love one another or die. Now, I know that I'm going to die, but I truly believe that we are not going to die. I don't know how to move through this world. I, I don't know. All I know is the last stanza of that poem. Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. When you hear the word prophet, you tend to originally uh, uh, sort of instinctively go to, he sees the future. He can tell what's going to happen, and that's part of it. But the work of a prophet is primarily to analyze the present and to, to look so granularly at the way things are, but also so comprehensively as to see trajectories. And it's what Isaiah is going to do, and it's what you just heard John Green do, to take the temperature of the moment and to offer his own analysis. And that's exactly what Isaiah is going to do for us. 
And in the same way that John Green speaks with a certain sobriety about the way he sees things, so Isaiah is going to speak with the utmost sobriety with the way he sees things in Israel. But the one thing that distinguishes John Green's prophetic tone and Isaiah's prophetic voice is that the best John Green can offer is questions like, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. But Isaiah has some suggested answers. They're both identifying the problem. There's both reason for uncertainty and fear. But Isaiah is going to offer to us at least some preliminarily in these first 20 verses a suggestion to the question, what shall take us out of this labyrinth of terror? And he's going to offer us three words for that. One, you have to accept the diagnosis. Two, you need to beware a disconnect. And three, you need to turn, turn toward kindness. Accept the diagnosis. Beware a disconnect. Turn toward the kindness. If you're able to stand, we're going to read the first 20 verses of Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom or become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
Though they're red like crimson, they should become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. A prefacing word. You're going to listen to Isaiah properly. You need to kind of understand when he uses the word nation, he is in fact speaking to Israel. A nation, a people with an ethnicity and a culture. But inasmuch as he uses the word nation, you need to make sure that when you hear him say nation and we think that these words in some ways apply to us, that Isaiah is not talking to us as, as if he were talking to America. Who Isaiah, if you want to find a proper analogy for the, the tone or the audience to which Isaiah is speaking, you need to think of it as a word to you. A word to me. A word to whoever is the people of God who claims the Lord as their God. That's who he's talking to. It's not a, if only my people will pray, I will anoint them. That, that's, a, that's a reading, again, unto a nation, but not to a nation that's, you know, a many nations within one nation. He's speaking to, if you will, the church. So here these words is not to America, but to us. Now, in terms of historical reconstruction and biographies, um, that's a hard task. We don't know a lot about Isaiah. Um, tradition holds that he might have been part of either a kingly class or a priestly class, which would have given a sort of a privileged view of the way things are, um, uh, sort of the scene, the forest for the trees. We don't know. One thing we do know is what his name literally means. His name means Yahweh saves. And what an interesting opportunity for him to live up to his name. He is, as Auden put it, all I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. That's what Isaiah is doing. And that's what he will do here. And as I said earlier, this is a moment of great strife between a northern and a southern kingdom. But rather than Isaiah focus on the geopolitical situation, he is here to speak into primarily the southern kingdom's condition. And the, what he's out to tell us here in the first part of the passage is that they are sick, afflicted, undone. And you hear that put rather carefully there in verses 5 and 6. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. This is not a flesh wound. This is not a 24-hour virus that Israel is afflicted with. This is something that runs deep. And what even compounds the problem is that Israel doesn't know. Look, any, any mom or dad or teacher worth their salt when they have a kid come outside from the playground busted with a boo-boo on their knee, if they're worth their weight in salt, you know what they're going to do first? They're going to wash it, disinfect it, and bandage it because that's what you've got to do with wounds. But this, the way Isaiah characterizes Israel's affliction, they're sick, but they don't know it because they've given no attention to it. They've bandaged nothing. They've washed nothing. They've disinfected nothing. They're just walking around going, everything is fine here. They're sick. And they're sick through and through. And that sickness has both symptoms and complications. 
How do you know you're sick? You start to give off stuff. You start to demonstrate stuff. And Israel certainly is. And it's symptoms you heard there towards the last slide of verse 4. Sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. What's the symptoms? A tradition of disobedience. A tradition of spurning whatever he has said in the law to cast it off. The word there, laden, it's meaning it's heavy. They're they're not just sort of dabbling in occasional ethical um, aberration. This is a tradition, habitual, what they're doing. It's so heavy, it's surfeit, they're satisfied, they're satiated with sin. And apparently it's so habituated, it runs across generations. When he speaks of children of iniquity, offspring of evildoers, and like, oh man, Isaiah must have been a great time at parties. Using language like that. But what he's saying is that what is now is cultured. It goes way back and it has no indication that it's going to let up at all. And in that sense, Isaiah kind of gets human nature, right? What, what are the most of the things that you and I do that we regret? It's stuff that we learned. We learned how to do that by seeing it in other people. And then what happens? We saw that, we do that, and then we end up teaching others to do the same. Isaiah does not live in on another planet. He understands that moment. He understands our moment. That sickness is a sickness. It's everybody's sickness. And that sickness has symptoms, but it also has complications. Complications as if things that come from the outside. When, when you have a symptom, you have something that's sort of manifesting from the inside. But complications, we go back to the part about how Israel is not sensible to its sickness and therefore it is given no attention to bandaging it up. And what happens? What happens if you don't bandage a wound? You have invited invaders to come out and increase and spread the infection. And surely you hear that spoken of actually, if not metaphorically, there in verses um, 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's a desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. Israel, I mean, Isaiah later in his work will get into the specific historical events that are, that's on his mind right here. He's just painting with a broad brush. Whatever's going on in Israel, their original plan to be a home and a refuge for the people of God, to be a base of operations so that they could be a blessing unto all nations. That ship has sailed. Everything is burned to the ground. And for their own negligence, their own internal negligence of their own condition, now there are folks that are ready to dispossess them of that place and take over. And now they live, again, metaphorically speaking, as if in a little hut out in the middle of of the farmland. And, and that's all evocative of how the real agricultural practice of Israel was. You lived in one place, but your farmland was way out there, and, and it was a long walk back between the house and the field. And so during the harvest season, they would erect these little booths, these little lean-tos, these little huts, and you would hang out there and maybe even sleep there during the harvest. So can you imagine? You live in this house. It's got everything you need. You construct these little lean-tos and you're living out there and then one night you look back behind you and your house is burning to the ground. And so all you've got is this little temporary shelter to ward off everything that might come to attack or entice you. That's all metaphor, but it's all speaking to the way in which 
everything has fallen apart for Israel. That's the complications that have come from without to only compound the symptoms that are from within. But therein lies the question, what's the sickness? Any doctor worth his salt is not simply going to treat your symptoms. They're going to do the best they can to find the cause. Otherwise, they don't know what kind of treatment to offer. Isaiah is coming to offer to them a demonstration of what is that sickness. And you hear it very early in the passage. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donker its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The sickness is that Israel has forgotten itself. It has become spiritually conditioned unto amnesia. And that amnesia manifests itself, you might say, in two directions. They have forgotten who they belong to, but they have also forgotten who they're responsible for. And boy, do those two things go together. You forget who you belong to, who you're accountable to. You can come up with any number of ways in which you might treat others in a different way. That's their condition. They've forgotten themselves. I have a cat. Her name is Audrey Hepburn. Her little coat looks like a little black dress. She's always ready for the night out. Every time I go on a walk up near the lake where I am, she will follow me. And she will meow the whole way saying, wait up, hold up, I want to come too. Every time I go, she follows. My wife goes, no way. <laughs> she follows me. She knows me. She gets me. I know, I feed her, okay, fine. So it's, it's you know, I have utility. But she knows enough to know that, yeah, that's, that's, that's I know who my master is. The ox knows its crib, but God doesn't know. Israel doesn't remember God at all. They've moved on. They're amnesiacs. And that word there for know, that Israel does not know her God, that word there for know is not like you and I know that Mars is red because we read it in a book or looked at it from a telescope. The word here for know is like knowing that the sea is vast because I've swum in it. Israel knows that God is vast because they have swum in his kindness. And now it's like, God, God, who? What is at the heart of their condition is what you heard at the end of verse 4, which somebody in first service was kind enough to tell me it didn't get printed in your bulletin. At the end of verse 4, what you hear Isaiah accuse or offer as a diagnosis to Israel is to say they are utterly estranged. Not that Israel and God aren't talking to each other anymore, that's true, but at the heart of the idea of estrangement is the idea that Judah has fallen in with another lover. They've known God's love and then they've become smitten with another. And so it's not like, um, God, I, I, I remember him, he was there. No, it's kind of like, I found somebody else to sleep with. When I was in a part of a youth ministry in San Antonio many, many, many years ago, we went to camp. And uh, the youth director of the camp that summer uh, came up with a wonderful game. He divided the whole camp into like six or seven different teams. 
And every morning, each team was given some hints. And they were to traipse the breadth of the campus using these hints to locate this small but noticeable and yet hidden pink plastic pig. Every day, you got new clues, and every team had to go find their pink plastic pig. And they would find it, and they'd go, we found it! Yes! Like, that was mission accomplished. But the way they had orchestrated the game was that every time you had found your pink plastic pig, in order to find it, in order to get it, you had to walk right by a cross. Like it was going to be there, and you would see it, but you would have to walk right by it and go for the pink plastic pig. You smart people in the room can probably figure out why a youth minister would come up with a game like that. Because he would say, as Jeremiah said to us, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is true for Jeremiah is true for Isaiah, which is true for us. When it comes down to estrangement, it's because we've come to discover or come to think that we can find something better, and we call it our pink plastic pig, and every time we do, we walk by that which offers us a life that is life. That's estrangement. That's Israel's problem. That's, that's a timeless problem. You and I can come up with any number of pink plastic pigs as an alternative to believing that he is in fact good. And when we forget that we're accountable to him, it's amazing the number of ways in which we can treat each other and forget how we're responsible for one another. That's Israel's diagnosis through what Isaiah has to say to them. Now look, um, it's an ancient idea. It's a timeless idea. And just to find an analogy, look, marriage is hard. I had the privilege of of um, officiating a wedding yesterday, and it's always my point to remind them in the midst of a wedding homily, uh, get ready. Not to say, wait for the other shoe to fall, not to cast a dour pall over the proceedings, but just to say, you know what? You will never have an opportunity to learn how to forgive than in an opportunity to marry. You will never discover it, the, the real richness of love than in the place in which you are tested in its fires. Whenever a marriage goes south or wherever it starts to struggle, at some point, maybe not at every point, but at some point you can trace it back to a forgetfulness of who they belong to and how they are responsible for one another. At some point, if you work through the conversations or you work through the fights or you work through the, 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 the betrayals or whatever, one or both people has forgotten who they belong to or how they are responsible for one another. And as it is in that little microcosm, a little church in a marriage, that plays out in every setting and even in the local church. You forget, you, you, you fall prey to this similar kind of forgetfulness, the amnesia. You will come up with any number of alternative loves, any number of pink plastic pigs. You will forget how to speak to one another with kindness or dignity. You will forget that you're not as important as you think you are. I ask you by way of rhetorical question. How would your life be absolutely different today if you really believed that you belong to God? How would that shape even how you finish the afternoon? If you really believe that you're responsible for one another as a consequence of having belonged to God, how would that change your afternoon? 
It is true. Isaiah is saying to us, we must love one another or die. That's the nature of our affliction. That's the diagnosis he's giving. And yet the second thing he wants to say to us is that there is actually something worse than the sickness. And that has to do with a disconnect. A disconnect we have to be very wary of and avoid at all costs. Let me put it in these terms. If there was anything that Israel was good at, it was ritual. Practices. You, you read the five, first five books of the, of the Old Testament and you will, you will see um, offerings and sacrifices and tithes and all sorts of religious practice um, that had uh, great uh, specificity and expectation and so they knew how to do that and that's great. And we kind of squint our eyes at that going, oh, how very interesting and how very old. And yet, if you will look very carefully at every single description of what one of those offerings or religious practices was, they always had a purpose. It was not simply, how do I kill a few hours? I know, let's have sacrifices. Every single prescription had one thing in mind. How do I affirm, protect, preserve my communion with this God who tells me who I am and brought me from a place of great sorrow. They all had to do with that. That's what they were for. And yet what Isaiah is out to tell us is that there is something here at work that Israel needs to be wary of. All of those little things were in the service of bigger things. And you know what? It's very possible in your family or in your line of work or friendships, like in your family, you might have little rituals you do every day that before you leave the house, you do the, 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 the hug, the kiss, the I love you, whatever it might be. You've got those little things because those little things are in service of bigger things. And that's what the religious practices were about. There were little things, a lot of little things in the service of a much bigger thing. But Isaiah is warning that there is something in the nature of that, in the practice of that, that has its own problem, not because of them, but because of us. And that problem is you and I, as it was with Israel, can come to see our participation in certain religious practices and devotions as an end in themselves. As so long as I knock off this um, boxes of you know, religious practices and forms of devotion that, okay, good, done my, done my part. Now God's off my back. Isaiah's warning about severing something severing the the nature of those practices from the life that's meant to come out of them. The life that's meant to be both inspired and sustained by them. And so of the most strident words you hear in this passage, it has everything to do with the way Israel is practicing her religious devotion. He says in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. What? Verse 14, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. Hate's a strong word. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. All of these prescriptions lined out in such great detail that's meant to form the very center of Israel's identity and God doesn't want any of it. Why? Because of what he says at the end of verse 15, there's blood on your hands. 
And by that, he means something more than you're engaging in ritual sacrifice all the time. He's saying that there's actual guilt on your hands for something. He doesn't specify which. Maybe it's spiritual indifference. Maybe it's some sort of hatred or anger. Maybe it's actual physical violence. He doesn't specify. We'll get into it later. All of your forms of worship are nothing to me because you're disconnecting them from what's meant to flow from them. Look, it's really easy for you and me in my day and our day to say, look, I, part- I, I, I attended worship. I participated in the discipleship classes. I put money in the box outside. Oh, friends, those are important. Isaiah is not throwing under the bus the idea of religious practices. There's plenty of them. He's not saying that that was a bad idea on God's part to institute them. He's just saying that you and I have the capacity to take those things and distort them in such a way that we think that's it. That's the whole and substance of what it means to be his. There is a life that flows out of them. And we have to beware the disconnect. But instead of just throwing them out, he wants to reconnect the two. And what is he out to bring into us? What is he out to call Israel to? It's what you heard there put in verse 17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. When Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 25, he puts it pretty starkly. He says, Woe to you, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, I have a great seasoning there, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You ought to have done without neglecting the others. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus is not saying anything that Isaiah hasn't already said. And God, through Isaiah, is not saying anything to Israel that God hasn't already done for Israel. He has been good. He has brought justice to the fatherless. He has to deliver them from oppression. He's not asking them to do anything that he hasn't done himself. But he's calling them to a life that reflects his own. And the problem with you and with me is that you and I myself so much included. I would rather just sort of come here and preach and go home and forget about it. But there's something on the other side of what we're doing here this morning. There's something on the other side of what it means to participate in classes or or to, to make ourselves still. There's something to come from it. And we have to beware of that disconnect. And the question is then, where do we begin? Fine. Accept the diagnosis, Isaiah? Okay. Fine. Beware the disconnect between whatever religious practices I give to to you know, ensure myself in communion with God and the life that's meant to flow for it. But where do I even begin? Isaiah has an answer. And it's what he said there in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Now that's a strong word and one hard to hear if you've grown up in a church in which Jesus says, you need me. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. What? Before you get uptight, what Isaiah is something there, he's talking about repentance. He's talking about turning. He's talking about taking stock of your heart and kind of seeing where it's leading. 
He wants you to, to consider the trajectory in which your heart is facing. And John Owen was a, a Puritan theologian of the 17th century. He had uh, 12 children, and not one of them survived into adolescence. But he continued to write, and he wrote prolifically, and he's one of the most prolific uh, Reformation theologians you'll find. But when it comes down to repentance, he says part of repentance is using your imagination. Using your imagination to consider what happens, what might happen if I continue to indulge in what I think might be sin, if I allow it to go to its logical conclusion. Where will that lead me? What will be the consequence possibly? For Isaiah to say to Israel, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, he's saying it's time for a change. Something's got to give. You've got to imagine where you're going to go. And it, on the trajectory you're on, if you stay on this route, what does he say at the very last verse? You will be devoured by the sword. Whether it's from own, among your own ranks or from the ranks of those outside, something's got to give. You've got to turn. You've got to take stock of your heart. You've got to see the trajectory that it's on. But at the same time, he's saying this. Look, you've got to turn. But you've also got to know that you're going to be met with kindness. He has said to us, accept the diagnosis. He has said to us, beware the disconnect. But what he's saying to you last of all is this. Turn into the kindness. That's a kind of a funny phrase. Where, where am I getting that? It's what he says in verse 18, which is the most poignant verse of the passage, I think. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We tend to think of when we fall into error in the Lord that the only thing we will get from him is his scorn. But what you are hearing in Isaiah's words here is God's kindness calling them to turn. And it is God's kindness that God is promising to Israel when they turn. And therefore, kindness is on the bookends of repentance. It, it, kindness leads them to repentance and they are met with kindness on the other side of repentance. Ours, according to Martin Luther, said it very often, his first theses, when he nailed those theses on the, the, uh, the door of the Wittenberg church, he said, life is one big exercise of repentance. We think stuff, we feel stuff, we say stuff, we do stuff, and we go, oh, have I blown it? Oh, have I blown it? And I do it so well, and it comes so easily. And there's a point in which you go to yourself, well, forget it, like, why bother? I'm, I'm done. I, I am, I, I, I'm just a sinner. That's it. And Isaiah is saying, no. There's kindness that is pulling you to, to turn away and you'll be met with kindness on the other side of it. Don't give up. And it's here, friends, that we hear the faint tracings of a story beneath a much bigger, fuller story. Now we are seeing, in Isaiah's words, I think a little bit of that rough draft that da Vinci made on that painting. A rough draft that finds its fullness in another story, but a related story, and that story is in the one of somebody whose first words to us in the gospel according to Mark was, repent. Jesus's, nearly his first words of his ministry was, repent. Not, gosh, I like you. Repent. His presence among us sure said, gosh, I like you. 
But his first words were repent. The thing is, though, no one ever dreamt of how God in Jesus would show us his kindness to lead us to repentance. Nobody saw that coming, not not with clarity. Isaiah got close, and we're going to hear that later. But no one imagined that God himself would bring to us a kindness that would lead us to repentance, a kindness of such great cost to him that he goes to his own death for it. You can't look at that cross and only think that God is looking at our sin with scorn. You can't think that that's the only thing. You have to look at that cross and believe that God is not looking at us with severe scorn eyes, but to say, oh man, there is life on the other side of it. That is the bigger story. That is the story above this story that we're hearing in Isaiah. And when we listen, when we listen to Isaiah's story, perhaps we capture a sense of what his story is. So look, here's the deal. What is the truth of the gospel? That it is God's kindness through his son's death that leads us to repentance, that we might know the life that is in him. And so you might say that what Isaiah is trying to say to us is this. You must love one another or die. But what Jesus adds to the conversation is to say this. We must love one another by dying to ourselves. In fact, that's our only hope of ever loving one another is by dying to ourselves. But the only hope of our ever dying to ourselves is by seeing one who through love, as an expression of kindness, died for me, a fool, to make me his friend. That's our hope. That's where we go. And in him is that friendship. What do we need to repent of as a people, as a church? You know what? There's lots of possibilities there. We as the the church universal, we may need to repent of treating others who differ with us in what we believe with anything less than dignity. We may need to repent of that. We, We may need to repent of the fear of being different in a world that thinks us mad. We may need to repent of being content with hearing and not doing, but we also may need to repent of thinking that his grace is not enough to cover our sin. We may need to repent of thinking that his grace is not enough to bind us to him in love. Any of those could be true. All of them are true in some way. But in what Isaiah has to say to us in the faint tracings and what Jesus says to us in living color, what they have for us is the way out of the labyrinth of fear. Let's pray. Father, I am uncertain and afraid. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this room and in this world. And I would ask that by your Spirit's help, I would learn to trust you in such a way that I might be free to love one another by dying to myself because I have seen how you have died to make me your own. Father, help me not to feel a kind of compulsion that I might seek to repay you for what you've done. I cannot. But help me be so free in your love that I might be free with mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?